Hello, and welcome to the Wealthy Woman Lawyer Podcast. We believe all women lawyers deserve to be wealthy women lawyers. Our mission is to provide thought-provoking, powerful, and practical information to help you in creating your own sustainable, wealth-generating law firm without overwork or overwhelm so you can live your best life. I'm your host, Davina Frederick, and I'm so excited for you to meet our guest today. So let's get started. Hi, and welcome to the Wealthy Woman Lawyer Podcast. I'm your host, Davina Frederick, and I'm here today with Al McBride. Al is a coach, consultant, and entrepreneur, and he particularly specializes in strategic intervention coaching, which is a, an approach that really uses different uh, schools of psychology and in helping him coach his clients and helping them excel. I'm super excited to have him here today, all the way from Dublin, Ireland. Uh, I assume that's where you are today. The last time you and I spoke, you were in Germany, but are you in Ireland today? Uh, I'm actually back in Germany again. I'm back in Berlin. I have been back in Dublin and because uh, at the moment I'm working between a few projects in both places. So I'm, and you I'm were uh, back over and the world, um, Corporations and other professionals, particularly you and I talked about uh, you're coming onto the podcast because you work with litigation attorneys and you really help people learn how to become better negotiators. Is that correct? That's correct. Uh, as I say, I usually give uh, people the, the psychological edge in negotiation, which is really just how I put it in that sense of often a lot of negotiators are people who have to negotiate for a living. And as you say, I've worked with litigators in particular, but not exclusively. And they're usually very competent at negotiation. Otherwise, they wouldn't really get too far in, in litigation. But uh, I've also found that then the, there's they, they're very competent at doing it. And usually, as I say, they're very successful, but they have several select modes or ways of doing it that work a lot of the time until they don't. And when they don't, then they don't have maybe a very good plan B, never mind a plan C. So what I often give them is that even though they're highly competent in the substance of what they're saying, there can be these other ways of being, the other ways of looking at the situation and dealing both with their own client as well as with the other side, their counterpart, that allows them to open up and get unstuck, that allows them to see more options and find more options uh, with the other side. Because even when, with, you know, with litigators, there's that situation you know, are you negotiating or are you in that maybe that further end where you're doing conflict resolution of sorts since it's litigation, right? And But even in those situations, as a good, as an old colleague and quite a good friend of mine, uh, one of my earlier clients pointed out to me is that even though you're doing this conflict resolution and things and when there can be a lot of aggression and fr friction there, you're still having to make a deal and have both sides happy enough with that deal because otherwise you go to often you end up in court right yeah. so that's always the backup so that you're still in that same area of of having actually both sides being happy enough or to a certain level of contentment about the deal but it's particularly tricky and challenging uh, with litigators because you're often starting from from a position of high emotions Usually one side is at the very least slighted, if not outright offended with the other. 
And so emotions can be running high because they're, they're tied into whatever it is you're litigating over. And so that you find yourself in a situation where it often, not always, but often at least one side are, are, are aiming for, if they can't get what they want, they're aiming for a lose-lose or at least a win-lose. Never mind a win-win. Because it's like, as long as you're hurting, I don't mind. I'll hurt as long as you're hurting, you know. And that's that's seriously challenging for anyone trying to trying to reach an agreement. Um, so, so yeah. For you, I've got lots of questions for you, Dave. But before we go, Please, to yeah. I really would like to the audience to get to know you a little bit better in terms of how what led you to this, how you got from where you were to really kind of specializing in helping people get a psychological edge in negotiation and sort of having more tools in their toolbox for negotiation. What, where did you, where, how did you begin your career and what led you here? Well, I mean, what to say is if there's a few main avenues that are probably relevant to this and that, you know, in university, I did psychology with art history. And then after I came out of uni. Uh, I initially went the art history route. I was an art dealer, worked in galleries, and then out my own as an art consultant. And so through both of those experiences, I was doing hundreds of deals. You know, it was just negotiating all the time. And it's also in an area that's very highly emotive. You know, even when people are trying to make rational decisions, it's all about emotion. It's all about how you're perceived, how the artist is perceived. And then other aspects of investment and all sorts of complications. So very interesting area with a lot of egos, a lot lot of, as I said, uh, emotion and uh, very, very interesting because a lot of those deals were were multidimensional. So it wasn't just a transaction. There's a lot of different parties going on because I particularly worked with, uh, with businesses. I wanted to work with businesses, buying art, supporting artists, that kind of thing. And so I'd work with architects or, or in uh, internal uh, interior designers, architectural interior designers. So I'd work with larger scale projects as well as large businesses where the businesses were trying to, to build up an art collection for various reasons, some partly for investment, but a lot of them were also for the purposes of setting culture within with the staff and with, with the employees, but also then projecting that outward almost it had to be in keeping with what they wanted their image and of differentiation to be for their clients so this is particularly true also of again law firms and of of accountancy firms professional bodies where where in many ways you're seen as very similar to your competitors but i used to say what differentiates you from your competitor down the street why should a client go with you and it's still a question i was writing about this the other day because someone was asking me about it uh and this is why it's relevant that why should someone go with you? What is it that you do different? And people can come up with the usual corporate nonsense about, oh, I serve the client better. Say, yeah, but what does that look like? You know, how does that, what does that matter? So I always remember that, you know, uh, there were law firms in London where one was founded in 1620. So all their artworks were paintings or etchings or furniture was ancient. And the whole message was, we've been here for 400 years we're going to be here for another 400 so we're like if you're into that more conservative absolutely solid you know slow to change but absolutely dependable they were your people right equally there was a law firm founded in the 60s all about innovation all the time always on the cutting edge 
And so they had artwork from every era at which they were the cutting edge. So uh-huh. their whole thing is we're always the cutting edge, but long scale, not like cutting edge from last year. Right. Wow. So it's like we're not we don't just see the trends, we lead them and all of that sort of good stuff. So they it was a way for the art to speak to both hiring, as in if you okay, we're all the same and you're all brilliant, but if you want to work with us, we're about these values. And so for me, it's an awful lot about values. And I think letting your values come through in the negotiation, something we can talk about later. I hadn't thought about about artwork, how your artwork is in can can help you communicate your core values. Because I guess being, you know, I'm uh, I work virtually, and I certainly think about it in terms of website design, logos. You know, a lot of people think about Mm -hmm. it in terms of website design and logos and colors, palettes, and schemes. What do the colors mean, and all that. I, it never really, it's nothing I've ever really thought about, about how I do know decor, like I worked here for a law, before I became a lawyer, I worked for a law firm that was the venerable, you know, traditional law firm that like to communicate, they, you know, and they had their traditional sort of look in their law firm. But, you know, here we're not 400 years old, they're more like, you know, 40, so. 50 years, and that's the, you know, old, right? And, um, and so their decor communicated that sort of traditional firm. And you're seeing a lot of young people now who are starting their firms and they're doing it remotely, they're doing distributed, and if and their but their photography that they're using is very modern. It's very, mm-hmm. you know, um, it, it looks brighter, lighter, and it conveys sort of this modern current age sort of look. You're not seeing as many of the sort of blue navy blue websites and muddy green websites you're seeing things that are sort of different um so it's a fascinating that's very fascinating and of course as an artist myself i i'm i you and i i'd love to have that conversation with you but i want to move you along to talking about how you move from uh this high level negotiation around art with corporations to sort of the work that you do today you're working with a lot of different corporations and business with regard to negotiation consulting, basically. So how did exactly. you make that transition? The transition was sort of forced upon me, like some great transitions are, because yeah. uh, particularly in Ireland at the time, you know, there was the recession, 2007 and eight, and there was also a massive housing crisis and whatnot in, in Ireland, and so property crash. And so people just weren't buying art. That wasn't going to happen. Luxury goods were, were all-time low. So I had to do something else. So I moved in a different direction uh, and back toward the more the psychological side where I did various foundational trainings in counseling and psychotherapy and more so then into the coaching side. I always knew that the coaching side was more, more my, more my beat. And I suppose just by doing training and facilitating both in organizations uh, uh, often in and around areas of resilience and performing under pressure, then into areas of communications, how to communicate effectively and with impact. Uh, they were all going in and around the negotiation because I'd learned from when I was an art dealer that, uh, how to put it, that you know I read a lot up on negotiation and I realized more and more, this has a huge overlap. The modern stuff has a huge overlap with coaching skills. Right. So and modern communication 
methodology, how to communicate better, how to gain rapport, how to grow rapport uh, with complete strangers, often from an adversarial position, all of this sort of stuff. So that was really where it all started to come together, where a lot of those previous strands that seemed separate started to come together, as did, you know, a lot of my experience uh, with various entrepreneurial projects over the years where, you know, you're having to get out there, you're having to propose a solution, you're having to propose essentially a sale and how uncomfortable that is and how, mm-hmm. how vulnerable you feel and all of these sort of things that, as I said, it, it all were coming together with this, this side of, of negotiation because uh, good colleagues of mine used to give me training work, uh, started to give me people who uh, were quite competent negotiators. They had many years experience, sometimes decades, but they still feel they were lacking something. They still feel there was a whole area that they weren't familiar with. So they knew the standard negotiation models for preparing and for executing their negotiations, but they felt sometimes outplayed, sometimes like they got stuck or couldn't get unstuck or just there wasn't a terribly satisfactory outcome, that they felt they were leaving some form of money or opportunity or something on the table that they weren't grasping. And and when I started working with them, it was that a lot of those uh, coaching skills and communication and uh, those sort of insights help them unlock, lower some of their own ego defenses and being able to build that rapport to actually open up the other side. So it's the classic thing that we say, easier said than done, of moving someone from an adversarial position to an ally, more of an ally position. And don't forget, like an ally, people... People think, you know, you're best mates or something. No, you're not at all. You know, Britain and America in the Second World War had huge disagreements over all sorts of things. But you had generally this idea that you were solving this problem. You were tackling this challenge together. And the more you can get into that mindset, the more both of you are actually adding value to this thing rather than adding to the problem, rather than just scoring points off one another in that traditional adversarial position now as i said that that, that's easier said than done but one of the things that a lot of people miss in this is the importance of trust and there was some research done on this um where generally when there's high trust between the two parties they're going to make in and around 30 to 35 percent more value in that deal that they come to where there's low trust then it's even it's far less than zero Basically, they won't come to an agreement and things will go very, very messy. Uh, And mid-trust, there'll be a little bit of a gain, but it'll be very transactional, right? They don't get beyond just the, I pay you, one side pays money and the other side gives a service type of idea, you know, or, or settlement in this way of the barely acceptable level. But when there's an element of rapport building into trust, then all of a sudden there's all sorts of interesting and unique situational additions of value that, that create huge, well, let's be honest, huge wealth. Yeah. <laughs> right? let, me, so, let me stop you because I want sure, to, sure, sure. I, I really want to, you, you give me so much to unpack and questions have been popping in my mind as you're talking. One is I really want to bring this to our audience. Our audience are women law firm owners mm-hmm. and they own uh small law firms, small to mid-sized law firms. And I want to just share a couple of things with you from, so I was, when I was in law school, I took one class on uh, alternate dispute resolution. And the textbook for that was who moved my cheese? Like if that gives you an indication of how unhelpful 
that was in literal negotiation. You know, it was it was very simple sort of concept. And then uh, a very popular book, a lot of attorneys read is Never Split the Difference, which was written by a guy who was like a hostage nego- negotiator. So that's a whole All different right. level. And that he's coming from the standpoint of a hostage negotiator. Like how awful is that to think people are being held hostage and you have to negotiate it. So my clients are, are negotiation is such a huge part of what they do all day, every day, whether they're a litigator or not, they're having to negotiate with their clients. They're having to negotiate with their opposing counsel. And oftentimes, and of course, obviously, you know, with other parties and opposing counsel and in court situations, oftentimes one of the most challenging aspects are is negotiating with opposing counsel, especially if you're dealing with people. Men and women have very different sort of styles, generally speaking, right? And if you're mm-hmm. dealing with uh, men, uh, men might come in with a big ego and a, a much more driven sort of approach. Women might come with something that's a little bit more, you know, can't we work through this and get along? Again, these are sort of general statements. I know there are women who are really aggressive and there are men who are much more, you know, um, softer in their approach. Mm -hmm. But what kinds of, what you're really talking about here when you're talking about psychological edge is really about sort of understanding human human behavior and human thought. Very and much. how somebody else thinks and really getting connected with what other people, where other people in the room are coming from and what they're thinking, right? So isn't it about sort of increasing your perception of what is going on with other people in the room and dialing yourself back enough to be able to understand that? Is that kind of what Th- you're talking about? That's, talking that's about? very much what I'm talking about. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I know... Uh, never split the difference and Chris Voss, the negotiator, the uh, FBI negotiator. And he writes great stories. It's why it was such a successful book because it's so evocative with the storytelling. But again, you look at that and it's all about how to talk to people. It's all about not rushing to conclusions and actually having empathy, right? Of how, what he calls uh, tactical empathy. I, I disagree right. with him on that point. It's, it's actually more strategic empathy because it's from your very as I say, values again, what you stand for, and it's from your very approach uh, rather than just a little tactical thing that you can do. Um, but it is exactly that. It's having that level of empathy. And this is, uh, we don't want to, let's get clear on what empathy is. At no point are you agreeing with the other side or condoning any actions or, or from the other side. All you're doing is trying to understand the other side, right? So this is a principle that I call think like a shrink. So, you know, how does a a shrink or a coach or a a therapist, whatever you want to call them, think? Well, they're fully present, but emotionally emotionally non-manipulative. That's the point. They can't be manipulated, right? But they're fully present. They're fully there. They can be 
so the other side can be trying to sweet talk them and being charming and all of this sort of stuff, which is often harder to spot, by the way, because everybody spots the super aggressive ego person who's on the attack. And usually, you know, you can it's unpleasant, but you can easily just deflect it, right? But it's the charming person who's often, you know, oh, yeah, yeah, win-win and all of this sort of stuff. And yeah, we're going to create a great outcome and all this. And it's like, yeah, maybe. But you need, as I said, it's fully present. So they feel you're there. They feel you're fully hearing them. You're fully taking on board what they're saying and reading all of the lines underneath. That you're, you're getting sense of context. You're getting a sense of, okay, this person needs to be this super aggressive attack dog for their client. This is something that came across to me. It was very interesting. As you said, that a lawyer isn't just... It's me versus the other side. It's like, no, 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 you're negotiating with your client, who you need to be in each engagement. You're negotiating with the other side's client. You're negotiating with the other side's lawyer, right? And then potentially if there's a judge or a mediator, someone else uh, uh, involved, then there's a whole other element as well. But the other person you're negotiating with that's often most overlooked is you. Which version of you are you going to turn up? Are you going to be that uh, attack dog? Are you going to be highly conciliatory? Are you going to be charming and gentle and playful and warm? Are you going to be ferocious, quite cold? How are you going to turn up? And that's a choice. And again, it's a choice, but most people just act on habit. And again, it goes back to what we talked about at the start, where people act on the few habits, the strategies that work for them back in the day, and often work for them until they don't. And this is the point that it's the until they don't, that we have other ways of emotionally being. So, for example, I had a, one of the old litigator friends of mine, colleagues of mine, a client of mine, uh, you know, was saying, oh, this person just hates me, and I don't know why. I mean, we, I don't know what I said. And it's just one of these things that we looked at it, we analyzed that. And it was one of these where they jumped straight into business. Like, okay, here we go. This is how I see it. How do you see it? And this person was just like, no, says, you need to treat me like a human being first. And he came back and then he sort of said, okay, look, I think we got off on the wrong foot. I have to apologize. Says, I'm far from perfect at this, you know. And just that human element of a simple apology and genuine Everything was fine then. It's like, oh, that's perfectly fine. Thank you so much. Blah, blah, blah. They're able to talk in a human way and then get into the business. There's a, a woman that I spoke with who uh, studies nonverbal communication. I've studied nonverbal communication mm -hmm. from the same teacher. And she, when she's, she helps trial lawyers um, do jury selection, mm -hmm. and she talks about how she yeah, you come across to people. And so with her, it's all about your nonverbals and the message you're sending. And she says, if you're having somebody who comes in to meet with you who's all business, you need to meet them where they are. If you exactly. start out, how did you find parking? Did you, was everything okay? You know, they're not, they're going to get, there's going to be a, an irritation there. You need to come exactly. in and hide, blah, blah, blah. And then you can shift things. But it's, and then the opposite, if you're coming in with somebody who needs the, who needs you to make sure to say good morning and how was your, you know, how's the parking, weather's beautiful. And you, and they're giving you those clues by their, what they're saying and by their nonverbals, then you need to meet exactly. them where they are. A lot of what you're talking about sounds like is really assessing where people are and being able to pick and choose from your own arsenal of 
how to to meet with them so that you can begin to kind of uh, align where the two of you are working a problem. Exactly. And, and that's precisely it is that, you know, people like people work with people that they like. You know, people will do deals with people that they like. If they, one of the hardest things to do is do a deal with someone who doesn't like you. You know, it's it's this idea of the substance versus the process versus the people, particularly people who are in expertise-based professions, like as you say, like whether it's IT or law, they're like all about the substance. It's all about the skill in my arguing. You know, in my all of this. It's like, yes, it is. <laughs> but unless, you know, in, in negotiated deals, the most important thing by far, 55% of nego- success in negotiated deals is the people side. Now, that doesn't mean that you need to be best mates, as I said, or, or that they need to like, like you, like want to go for a beer type of thing. It's that they like slash respect you. So that, again, that you don't have to be friendly, friendly. Now, some people do want that, but others yeah, they're, this person is competent, they're on the ball, we're straight in, we're, you know, if that's what they want, that you're able to maneuver, notice the cue and maneuver. Because as you say, it's a lot easier to move people to where you want to go when you meet them where they are, not where you are. And it's knowing that you were virtually never at the same place, particularly when you're on the other sides of the table. So, but it, as you said, it's listening for those cues to meet them where they are. And then it's easier to maneuver them because either you're in that kind of, yeah, we're down to business, duh, 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 talking about some of the issues, even though you can still turn it to them, make them feel heard. Like, okay, what's your position on this? What's your position on that? Okay, well, we have to completely disagree on that, but, oh. but you know, you're going straight into the, hearing them out. You can play them at their game. What we call it is, is directing, not dictating, is one of the most underused forms of communication where again like a shrink who's doing the talking in that room the shrink or the coach uh, the shrink the coach or the client it's always the shrink right they're, they they're doing so little talking but they are completely directing the flow of that conversation but making the other person person feel listened to heard understood respected regarded etc and that's what builds the rapport with the client uh, with the uh, coach Whereas it can be very similar in, in any form of conversation. One side is doing the talking, the other side is learning. Right. Right. Because right. then when you're putting your, either your counterpoints or indeed your counter suggestions to them, you can fit them much more accurately in with the worldview of the other side. And it's also, as I said, knowing what, one of the great things you can do, and it's, it's in some ways it's quite easy, in some ways it's a bit more tricky, but is what are the other side's KPIs? What are the key performance indicators? How are they judged? How do they judge a success or a win? Now, some parts of that will be quite easy, some more, maybe more tricky. But it, you, ha- you start with a hypothesis and you're taking that into that room, into that conversation, where you're then testing the hypothesis. Like a scientist, you're, you're getting that new information and updating it to make it more accurate. So you're wanting to move from right to accurate. This is a key differentiator. The ego wants us to be right and is looking for information when the biggest, most you know, uh, comprehensive bias and human thinking pr- error that we have is the confirmation bias. Basically, we look for information that confirms what we already think or believe or know to be true, right? Whereas when you are doing the opposite, when you're trying to be accurate, you're looking for information 
that makes you more accurate, not that makes you right. And what the what that means is one of the ways to think of, okay, if I was to bet on this, would I bet a hundred thousand dollars that I'm right? Whatever that might be, that you know, whoever will win, you know, the NFL, the, the Super Bowl next year. Yeah. You, know, you can say it, but someone says, Would you bet a hundred thousand dollars on that? Uh well, oh well. Why? Because suddenly if you're asked to put skin in the game, whatever that might be, that this company, you're literally putting, you know, someone else's skin in the game. So this is what you're doing. Maybe the payout is, say, $250,000 or half a million dollars, very major client, right? That's what you're doing. That's what's at stake. So think of it in those terms. So what is likely that you think it's this? That's fine. What's How confident are you? Put a percentage on it. I'm 90% confident that's how that's the answer. Oh, you're 90. Great. This is how we get away from the confirmation bias. So you're 90% confident. That means you're 10% not confident. Confident. So what's the 10%? Let's explore that. So you go in there and you see the issues and then you can mitigate or de-risk them. You can also talk to colleagues, you can talk to whoever. What's again, I talk about this when we're talking about leadership development, which was another area I do as well, because the leadership is a part of that internal negotiation. It is same with first we lead ourselves, right? So it's that same thing. It's the difference between imagine, you know, when you're speaking to a colleague and they say, I'm 80% certain this is the right way to go, but I have a few reservations. What are your thoughts? Should do you think I should be more certain or less certain? It leaves this versus. This is the way I think we should go. What do you think? Right? So one opens the space. It opens the space for that collaboration of ideas, of adding value, new perspectives. Oh, I think this element you're missing out on. Oh, I think this is actually not as high a risk as as we thought, blah, 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 and so on. But this is where we get away from that dominant idea of my interests, I don't really care about your interests, or being overly appeasing where I'm concerned more about your interests and less about mine, compromise being that 50-50 where we're both barely getting enough of what we need to be content. Whereas collaboration, collaboration starts with the question, how do we both get as close to 100% of what we want? How do we both get as close to 100% of what we want? What an amazing question. With the negotiations thinking, how do I get 100% of what I want? Exactly. Opposed, we both come out of this, and we have a saying in uh, basically in family law or in in the law here that like if you if you come out and both parties are unhappy, then you've successfully <laughs> negotiated because nobody's going to get a hundred percent of what they want, right? Exactly. Um, I want to, so I don't. I I, I don't want to take sides on politics, although anybody who knows me knows I have uh, strong opinions about politics, but. It is a huge issue here in the United States, and we're seeing it, you know, all around the world and other countries sure. as well in our, in our national elections and our local elections, where there's this kind of conservative, progressive, you know, uh, push and pull. And the United States has become a really uh, challenging issue because you have such extreme beliefs on either side, mm-hmm. and people are having a hard time even having discussions with people with different viewpoints anymore because it, because it feels so much like it, everything is a deal breaker. Like you seem mm. to, people are so far apart in their beliefs, in their political beliefs, that 
it's getting to a point where people are cutting people out of their family. You know, they're like, mm-hmm. I'm blocking all these people that are my friends in real life on my social media because I'm finding out who they are and what they really believe, what they really stand for. And so it, that is a huge thing that's sort of going on culturally as well. How can we, um, how can we, no matter where we are on the spectrum, start to make changes and use nego- use some of these negotiation strategies to be more open to conversation and maybe being able to have conversations that might bring people more to the middle in, exactly. in, in, in it, negotiating talking without, it, it, yeah. uh, I want to say without uh, the expectation that we are going to you know, I don't know, like change people's mind. I think it's it's difficult. Well, that, that's the first point. Yeah. I'm never going to change your mind. Well, but that's what most people are trying to do. They're trying to call the other side an idiot and you're wrong. So again, it goes back to this wrong versus accurate. So park being right or wrong for the moment, uh, not not forever, but just for the moment, and actually try and look under what's going on. So one of the one of the key attributes is ascribe positive intent. So even if someone says, I hate you and I want you to die and blah, 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 and all these horrible things that people say, what's going on underneath that? So again, do you think like a shrink? Let the 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 actual statement wash over you, you know, off a duck's back. What's the what's the request beneath that? You know, is it something like I'm fearful that things are changing and I don't like it is often, you know, you know, for example, one of the things that might be being communicated under this tirade of, of abuse. Right. But it, it's it's, as I said, getting to this idea of actually having someone and, le- and letting them speak. How often do we let someone that we don't agree with speak? We tend to cut them off. We tend to interrupt them with arguments of how they're wrong. And they're probably trying to do the same to us. And this is why there's there's a breakdown of dialogue. So it's very difficult, particularly when there are emotions at stake, to to get beneath that. But it is this idea of, as I said, managing our own mental and emotional states, what we think and how we feel, our emotions, to be able to be in that fully present but emotionally non-manipulative space. So we're not trying to manipulate them per se, and we're, they're certainly not going to be manipulating us. So we're not going to rise to the fight, so to speak, and just hear them out. What's their argument? What is their position? But what's beneath their position? What's the need? Is it security? Is it, uh, is it ideas of some concept of freedom, co- some concept of, of, I don't know, of... of uh, what are the values that they're trying to express here? Now, we don't need to agree with that. Again, there's no agreement that you're going to come to. But for example, I had a conversation with a guy in a bar in, in London several years ago when I lived in London. And uh, he was a little bit of a controversial figure and he was annoying some people around us. But I, you know, I wanted to talk to this guy and he was a Brexit supporter. So uh, and a few people were like, oh, you know, I don't want to hear, I don't want to, you know, idiot, you know, fascist, you know, whatever, racist. And all of these things may or may not have been true. But it's like, okay, well, I wanted to talk to this guy. So I just talked with him. 
And long story short, again, whether you agree with him or not, he talked about how he felt like he didn't fit in anymore. He felt unwelcome in the town that he grew up in. He felt afraid in a lot of places where he used to feel very safe. And that was the underlying need. It was an old man who was now afraid. And things that were familiar were now scary. And again, was it the way to handle it? No, of course not. Was that a, 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 you know, but could I empathize with an old man who suddenly felt fear? Yes, you can. So this was the point. But And he actually, he was kind of very grateful at the end. He said, I think you're the first one who actually ever asked me why I voted that way. Either people agreed with him, just like, yeah, you know, and slogan stuff, or people disagreed with him and went, yeah, instant judgment and slogan stuff. And it's getting beneath the slogans, getting beneath that. Because sometimes, yeah, people haven't thought the thing through and it's just basically a, a slogan that they fit in with in their tribal leanings, right, where they feel accepted. But other times there's, you know, often there's a real values cause there that we don't like this because it threatens this other thing that we care about very much. And again, you don't need to agree with that. You can fundamentally disagree with that, but you can at least understand the human need that's at work here you know which might help be... make some sort of advancement if you can think of a way for to help exactly. get that right um exactly i mean it's called the just say it's called the movable middle finding that that area where you you kind of both just about agree on and then being able to just move because people are able to move slightly further you know, sort of, again, the NFL, if you're near the goal line, you know, moving up to the halfway line is yeah. a big leap. But if you're if you're near the halfway line, moving them over the halfway line is, is a good bit easier. So because you can find this move in the middle. The other thing is presuming that you're fully right. Have a bit of humility. Maybe there's a few things that you're inaccurate on. And oh, my God, you're actually off on and willing to update your schema, your worldview that may may need updating here right so again it's it's we we presume when we're going into these conversations that we're clearly right to a moral level <laughs> and they're clearly wrong for all sorts of factual and down to a moral level and i'm suggesting that maybe if we're willing to move and update our idea maybe they are too and which leads me to my next question which is about uh, and I'm probably going to spark some people off on both sides in that comment, but which leads me to my next question, which is about facts. I think a lot of people come into negotiations thinking, well, here's the facts, here's the law, you know, like attorneys, facts, laws, mm -hmm. it's very clear, right? Here's the facts that I have. And yet we know from plenty of research that's been out there is that facts aren't the most persuasive thing sometimes. Like, Absolutely not. Yeah. disagree on what the facts are. So in a negotiation, how can you give like percentage, like how important is what you know, like what you think you know, right? Well, this this can, 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 yeah. Sorry, people. go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it, it, it goes back to that idea of substance. That's where the facts and your legal arguments and all the rest of it come into it. But the net, you know, that that only ascribes to what seven percent or something of the outcomes, whereas thirty eight percent, you know, are the process, and fifty five percent of the people. So the process being, you know, what we're focusing on. That's again like the framing. 
It's like, we're going to focus on this and not that. We're going to talk about it in these terms. We're going to look at it through this lens. So when you have more influence on the process, it, that was already framing how we're going to view the thing. But then, it, but first and foremost is the people, because if they don't have some regard and respect for you, they're not going to hear you. They're not going to actually hear your argument to weight it. They've already judged your argument if they don't like you <laughs> and don't respect you. And this was the problem, for example, with the, the, the Brexit thing was that people were giving all these facts. Oh, well, look at all this money that we make from the EU. And yes, we put money in, but we get a ton of money out and blah, blah, blah. And people were like, yeah, but you're telling me this and I don't like you. That was the problem. The people didn't like the people telling them this, this facts. So they, they, they disregarded or they saw the facts, even if they heard them through this lens of, yeah, but I don't like you. And I, they either didn't trust them or they're like, I, I actually am diametrically opposed to how you do things, you know. So, so again, it's that sort of thing that they won't even hear the arguments if they right. don't have some level of respect for you or feel that you're in some way have an under a potential for understanding. You mentioned that several times. So let's talk about that. How do we, if people are coming in and they, they don't respect us fundamentally to begin with, how do we shift that? Because we certainly have, we have that going on um, in our society. It, so let's say, put it in a, let's put it in a negotiation room where mm -hmm. you have somebody who looks like somebody that you automatically make assumptions about, uh, mm -hmm. you know, I remember when I started in my career, um, you know, people would say I was a feminazi because I had, I was married to my first husband and I had a hyphenated last name. And so I would have older white men who saw me, young woman, married to somebody from a different ethnicity, had a hyphenated name, and they would say, you're a feminazi. So they immediately... I mean, could there be anything more offensive than calling somebody a Nazi? I mean, except for the people who identify as Nazis, but like they immediately come in with a lack of respect because of who they thought I was, right? And I do think that a lot of, um, because we have, you know, in the United States, we have such a culturally diverse and there's a lot of tension between people in different groups, there are those things where you walk into a room and you feel like you're immediately not respected mm -hmm. by the other person. That And that may be a, an age thing. Uh, I know a lot of young women attorneys have reported that they, you know, get treated a certain way by older attorneys. And I know when I first started out in my career, I had people play, try to play mind games and file sanctions against me for no reason. There was no, nothing sanctionable just to mess with me because I was a young attorney. I was new attorney, right? So what do you do when you know somebody because of your, because of who they think you are automatically doesn't respect you? Uh, and maybe there are several people in the room look at you that way. I know that there have been a lot of um, young women attorneys of color or women attorneys of color who've gone mm -hmm. in to a courtroom and people, other people in the courtroom think that they are, not an attorney, that they are a court reporter, or even a defendant in some cases. Mm. What do you do when you go into a situation like that and you immediately know that there are people looking at you thinking that they know who you are and they don't respect you? So how do you 
how do you get that respect in in a moment very quickly like how do you let them know like what are some techniques or something that you can mm-hmm. do that puts you it gets people to immediately go wait a minute i need to back up a little bit here well Not- there's a f- obviously there's a few different approaches you can take so and this depends on your personality as well in that the first thing is to know your stuff obviously when you come in be ready to do the business now you can be playful as in you can actually cut some of that tension if you're that sort of person who can actually either be playful with yourself uh, or about yourself or the situation some people that works very well you know i've known quite a few people who've been able to they literally use it as a tactic to break the ice, to break uh, nervousness. You know, um, they can be quite playful. And as I said, that just lightens the mood. It's like, oh, few kind of moment, you know, when there's a lot of tension. With this situation, playfulness may be less appropriate, you know, particularly depending on the room that you're walking into, right? So, it, you know, it's very different if it's, uh, you know, with the other lawyer, if both clients are there versus in a courtroom, whatever, it's a radically different situation. But one of the ones is to just act in a totally professional, competent manner. You know, because then you're playing with the schema. So they're thinking, oh, I thought you'd be shrill feminist lawyer, as the Simpsons used to, you know, shrill feminist lawyer, as the Simpsons used to, you know, play with that stereotype. And instead, you're not. You're highly competent. You do and this based on this, this based on that. And so everything is nice and orderly and in a row, just as professional as anyone else would be expected to be. It's harder for them to keep this schema, that idea, the original idea. And another is, you know, the kill them with kindness. Be extremely pleasant and polite. It's very hard for them to then again go, oh, you're a terrible person. You're this, that, and the other. Because you're not. Do you know what I mean? It, it, they, they will see what you're, they will see your behavior still through a different lens, but it's harder and harder when the experience doesn't match the initial assumption to keep that uh, assumption. Whereas when you burst into, this is the unfortunate thing, when you burst into this isn't fair or how dare you or this, that, and the other, that can work sometimes and it can backfire on others in the sense that they, they think they're having their view confirmed, you know, whereas in actual fact it's not. So, but just to say, sometimes you need to stand up to the bully. So if someone says, how dare you, blah, 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 even think to ask yourself, how dare you, blah, 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 and then you're back on facts, but you're pushing back. As in, I will give as good as I get. And you can even say, you know, you push me, I'll push back in a nice way, in kind of a look, if we want to play it that way, we can play it that way. I'm highly flexible and adaptable as to how this whole negotiation goes. If you want to be shouty, maybe I'll shout back. Maybe I'll just not, you know, so it's that choice of being able to think, what is this person trying to be? What is their usual way of being? And you can either go with that, with that pattern for as long as it suits you or pattern interrupt. Yeah. You know, you can do the pattern, shatter their pattern by the pattern interrupt. Yeah. Um, Just to say, there's no one way of doing this and it has to be authentically you. But what I would say is that you have the freedom to run experiments. You have the freedom to try ways of being that maybe you do already very well, 
or maybe that you haven't tried out as much. So that's a lot of what you're talking about when you're talking about sort of a psychological edge is really the more you understand yourself, the more you understand mm. how other people behave and that there are underlying things underneath it. One of the, of course, one of the great books is The Four Agreements. A lot of people reference that book. I've recommended that book. And one of the things that I go back to over and over again in that book is not to take things personally. And when you realize that somebody else's behavior is not about you as a person because they don't know you as a person. Exactly. It's about them. It is about them and their whatever they've got going on in their head, right? Yeah. And past experiences don't have anything to do with you. Then it it shifts the power a little bit. Absolutely. Have- and that's the shift in the power that you need, that you don't need their respect. That's the first awareness that you have because they don't know you. They And it's sad to the point of pathetic, but it's also frustrating because you're the one having to deal with it, is that they don't know you. They're dealing with a, a concept they have in their head, which is outdated, outmoded, inaccurate, you name it. And it's not fair. Fairness is a human construct. You know, it's not fair, you know, that one animal eats another. But on the flip side of one animal eating another is another animal gets, you know, the kids get to eat and not die out, right? So, you know, it's, it's where you put the lens on that fairness. Now, that, that's not quite the, the right analogy, but it's the point that fairness is a human construct, that we bring the fairness. You don't need to be respected out, out of the gates because you respect yourself and you know better than they do, as, just as you said, that they're dealing with a concept of you, not you. But you have to be you, whether that's being hyper-competent, whether, as I said, being playful or highly aggressive back or a mix. This is the thing that often my clients say is that it opens up the full spectrum of possibility so that you can be a highly aggressive back down into being assertive. You can be compromising on this point that you know it's important to them, even then being kind over here and then up to being collaborative of of trying to bring them further on side and to solve this problem that you're working on together so that you can do all this in a sentence, essentially, right? Maybe it's a long sentence, but the point is the same, that you can change your emotional resonance to see what they're responding to. How do they respond to being pushed back? How do they respond to being considered? How do they respond to being treated like a human being? So again, it goes back to this thing. It's a more serious version, but it goes back to the earlier point about what does this where is this person when you meet them and then decide where to take them from there so if they're being highly aggressive you can go multiple directions with that do you push back or do you try do you actually be more collaborative with that or do you just be playful you know call out the tactic oh wow bully boy tactic interesting does that normally work for you now that's a very brave thing to say but but it does highlight the the strategy that they're using you say you're really rampaging, bulldozing through the room there. You know, does that usually get results for you? And I mean, you don't want to sound like a smart ass, but you know what I mean? You, you can you can highlight that tactic. You're saying you're, you are, you can even just say very calmly, you know, you're being very aggressive. You know, is that, is that usually the successful? Can you be slightly more conversational perhaps? 
because I'd prefer that if that would work for you or something like that, where you're, you can you can spotlight what's going on and bring them down and make a suggestion. You know, There are multiple ways. Again, it has to fit you to a certain degree, but you get to experiment. But the point is, you control your emotional. If they, they're not making you angry, they're being prejudiced or daft or stupid in their attitude toward you, and you're angry. You get to decide what makes you angry, or it can make you empowered because they're underrating you. They're underestimating you. Right? So are they suddenly, are they, yes, they're undervaluating you, but what's the advantage in that? How do you turn all of these things to your advantage? That's the question. And it's always the question of where do you have choice in how you view the thing, how you have choice in how you wish to turn up and how you wish to respond and be in that situation, how you choose to act, how you choose to behave. You can't, you can't control their behavior. You can influence it, but you can't control it. You can control how you behave. And so it's right. always that flipping of the power. They only have taken the power away if you let them, if you allow them to, but you can choose to take it back. Yeah. yeah. And it Wouldn't starts with a question. To- here. Al, but I want to, I just want to, I want to throw out, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but we we do need to end, but I just want to uh, also say too, I think a lot of times people are, um, they, you can, in your personal life, if somebody offends you, you can block them and shut them out and choose to be around other people and all of those things. But when you're representing clients in matters and you are there to get the resolution of some kind whether that's in a negotiation, a settlement, or whether that's going to court and getting a resolution, you can't abdicate. You can't, you can't say, well, I don't have the power. You're there to do a job and to get the job. So that's why I think it's so important because in your personal life, you may be able to avoid, and that may be your strategy. And I, I would submit that that is going to leave you with a less rich life than if you choose to, you know, not do that because it's difficult to find, you know, five people that are on the same page with you on everything, right? Exactly. <laughs> it doesn't happen. Yeah. Everything, right? So to get through life, you do need to have negotiation skills, personal or not. But when it comes to being a lawyer, it's not really an option. If you're whatever you're doing anything, whether you're doing transactional work and you're negotiating in that forum or with, or you're just negotiating with clients or whatever, I do think this is a incredibly necessary skill in life in general, but certainly in our business. So I want people to be able to reach out to you if they want to get to know more about you and what you teach. Where can they connect with you? Uh, Well, they can go to almcbride.com, quite simply. And I also have a podcast, the Goliath, Dealing with Goliath podcast, uh, helping all the the Davids in the Goliath struggles uh, out there. and I also have a resource, which is a psychological edge negotiation mini course. It's an email mini course. And you can get that at almcbride.com slash mini course. So there's on that page, you'll see there's a cheat sheet, preparation cheat sheet and the email mini course there. So Excellent. there's a few different Excellent. options. Or you can reach out to me on LinkedIn and hopefully you'll, you'll have, a, have, have my LinkedIn uh, somehow linked to this podcast. You can reach out and say hello from there. Yeah, we'll, we'll definitely include all those links in the show notes of this podcast. So you guys don't have to search for them. They'll be there for you. Thanks so much, Al. I really enjoy this conversation a lot. As you can tell, I'm very 
I find it very fascinating. Uh, and so I appreciate you bringing some insight and expertise to help us. Thank you. You're very welcome. Thank you. Cheers, Davina. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of the Wealthy Woman Lawyer podcast. If you have, we invite you to leave us a review on your preferred podcast platform. The more five-star reviews we have, the more women law firm owners will be able to positively impact. Your thoughts and opinions are so important to us. If you are a woman law firm owner who wants to scale your law firm to a million dollars or more in gross annual revenue and do it in a way that's sustainable and feels good to you, then we invite you to join us in the Wealthy Woman Lawyer League. The League is a community of highly intelligent, goal-oriented, and driven women law firm owners who are excited to support one another on their journeys to becoming wealthy women lawyers. We'll be sharing so much in the League in the coming year, including the exclusive million-dollar law firm framework that until now, I've only shared with my private one-to-one clients. For more information and to join us, go now to www.wealthywomanlawyer.com slash lead. That's www.wealthywomanlawyer.com slash lead. Lead is spelled L-E-A-G-U-E. We look forward to seeing you soon in the lead.